This is From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archive's weekly series where we get to profile some of the amazing recordings in our 55,000 program collection going back to 1949. I'm your host, Mark Torres. On this week's From the Vault, we continue with a reading of George Orwell's classic novel, 1984, with part eight of our 10-part dramatic reading. The entire book was read on air by longtime Pacifica morning show host Charles Morgan and legendary voiceover artist June Ferre in 1975. Here is part eight of the 10-part reading of George Orwell's 1984, produced for Pacifica Radio by Paul Vangelisti in 1975. We left off as our heroes Winston and Julia took a huge gamble to meet a powerful man, O'Brien, who they believed would be an ally to fight the system they lived in, a conspiratorial government set on staying in power at any cost, oppressive laws including thought crimes, propaganda newscasts, rewriting history and literature, monitoring a person's every move at work, in public, and at home. Could O'Brien be the person that helps them turn things around? We find out now. He rose deliberately from his chair and came toward them across the soundless carpet. A little of the official atmosphere seemed to have fallen away from him, with the newspeak words, but his expression was grimmer than usual, as though he were not pleased at being disturbed. The terror that Winston already felt was suddenly shot through by a streak of ordinary embarrassment. It seemed to him quite possible that he had simply made a stupid mistake. For what evidence had he in reality that O'Brien was any kind of political conspirator? Nothing but a flash of the eyes and a single equivocal remark. Beyond that, only his secret imaginings, founded on a dream. He could not even fall back on the pretense that he had come to borrow the dictionary, because in that case, Julia's presence was impossible to explain. As O'Brien passed the telescreen, a thought seemed to strike him. He stopped, turned aside, and pressed a switch on the wall. There was a sharp snap. The voice had stopped. Julia uttered a tiny sound, a sort of squeak of surprise. Even in the midst of his panic, Winston was too much taken aback to be able to hold his tongue. You can turn it off, he said. Yes, said O'Brien. We can turn it off. We have that privilege. He was opposite them now. His solid form towered over the pair of them and the expression on his face was still undecipherable. He was waiting, somewhat sternly, for Winston to speak, but about what? Even now it was quite conceivable that he was simply a busy man, wondering irritably why he had been interrupted. Nobody spoke. After the stopping of the telescreen, the room seemed deadly silent. The seconds marched past, enormous. With difficulty, Winston continued to keep his eyes fixed on O'Brien's. Then suddenly the grim face broke down into what might have been the beginnings of a smile. With his characteristic gesture, O'Brien resettled his spectacles on his nose. Well, shall I say it or will you? He said. I will say it, said Winston promptly. That thing is really turned off. Yes, everything is turned off. We're alone. We have come here because... He paused, realizing for the first time the vagueness of his own motives. 
Since he did not know, in fact, what kind of help he expected from O'Brien, it was not easy to say why he had come here. He went on, conscious of what he was saying must sound both feeble and pretentious. We believe that uh, there's some kind of conspiracy, some kind of secret organization working against the party, and that you're involved in it. We want to join it. We want to work for it. We're enemies of the party. We disbelieve in the principles of Insos. We are thought criminals. We are also adulterers. I... I tell you this because we want to put ourselves at your mercy. If you want us to incriminate ourselves in any other way, we're ready. He stopped and glanced over his shoulder with a feeling that the door had opened. Sure enough, the little yellow-faced servant had come in without knocking. Winston saw that he was carrying a tray with a decanter and glasses. Martin is one of us, said O'Brien impassively. Bring the drinks over here, Martin. Put them on the round table. Have we enough chairs? Then we may as well sit down and talk in comfort. Uh, bring a chair for yourself, Martin. This is business. You can stop being a servant for the next ten minutes. The little man sat down quite at his ease and yet still with a servant-like air, the air of a valet enjoying a privilege. Winston regarded him out of the corner of his eye. It struck him that the man's whole life was playing a part, and that he felt it to be dangerous to drop his assumed personality even for a moment. O'Brien took the decanter by the neck and filled up the glasses with a dark red liquid. It aroused in Winston dim memories of something seen long ago on a wall or a hoarding, a vast bottle composed of electric lights which seemed to move up and down and pour its contents into a glass. Seen from the top, the stuff looked almost black, but in the decanter it just gleamed like a ruby. It had a sour, sweet smell. He saw Julia pick up her glass and sniff at it with frank curiosity. It is called wine, said O'Brien with a faint smile. You will have read about it in books, no doubt. Not much of it gets to the outer party, I'm afraid. His face grew solemn again, and he raised his glass. I think it is fitting that we should begin by drinking a health to our leader, to Emmanuel Goldstein. Winston took up his glass with a certain eagerness. Wine was a thing he had read and dreamed about, like the glass paperweight or Mr. Charrington's half-remembered rhymes. It belonged to the vanished... Romantic past, the olden times, as he liked to call it in his secret thoughts. For some reason, he had always thought of wine as having an intensely sweet taste, like that of blackberry jam, and an immediate intoxicating effect. Actually, when he came to swallow it, the stuff was distinctly disappointing. The truth was that after years of gin drinking, he could barely taste it. He set down the empty glass. Then there is such a person as Goldstein, he asked. Yes, there is such a person, and he's alive. Where, I do not know. And the conspiracy, the organization, is it real? Is it not simply an invention of the thought police? No, it's real. The Brotherhood, we call it. You will never learn much more about the Brotherhood than that it exists and that you belong to it. I'll come back to that presently. He looked at his wristwatch. It is unwise even for members of the inner party to turn off the telescreen for more than a half an hour. You ought not to have come here together, and you'll have to leave separately. 
Um, you, comrade, he bowed his head to Julia, will leave first. We have about twenty minutes at our disposal. You will understand that I must start by asking you certain questions. In general terms, what are you prepared to do? Anything that we're capable of, said Winston. O'Brien had turned himself a little in his chair so that he was facing Winston. He almost ignored Julia, seeming to take for granted that Winston could speak for her. For a moment the lids flitted down over his eyes. He began asking his questions in a low, expressionless voice, as though this were a routine, sort of catechism. Most of the answers were known to him already. You are prepared to give your lives? Yes. You're prepared to commit murder? Yes. To commit acts of sabotage which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people? Yes. To betray your country to foreign powers? Yes. You are prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the power of the party? Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve our interest to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. You are prepared to lose your identity and live out the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. You are prepared to commit suicide if and when we order you to do so? Yes. You are prepared, the two of you, to separate and never see one another again? No! broke in Julia. It appeared to Winston that a long time passed before he answered. For a moment he seemed even to have been deprived of the power of speech. His tongue worked soundlessly, forming the opening syllables, first of one word, then of the other, over and over again. Until he had said it, he did not know which word he was going to say. No, he said finally. You did well to tell me, said O'Brien. It is necessary for us to know everything. He turned himself toward Julia and added in a voice with somewhat more expression in it. Do you understand that even if he survives, it may be as a different person? We may be obliged to give him a new identity. His face, his movements, the shape of his hands, the color of his hair, even his voice would be different, and you yourself might be... become a different person. Our surgeons can alter people beyond recognition. Sometimes it's necessary, sometimes we even amputate a limb. Winston could not help snatching another sidelong glance at Martin's Mongolian face. There were no scars that he could see. Julia had turned a shade paler so that her freckles were showing, but she faced O'Brien boldly. She murmured something that seemed to be assent. Good. Then that settled. There was a silver box of cigarettes on the table. With a rather absent-minded air, O'Brien pushed them toward the others took one himself and then stood up and began to pace slowly to and fro, as though he could think better standing. They were very good cigarettes, very thick and well-packed, with an unfamiliar silkiness in the paper. O'Brien looked at his wristwatch again. You'd better go back to your pantry, Martin, he said. I'll switch on in a quarter of an hour. Take a good look at those comrades' faces before you go. You will be seeing them again. I may not. Exactly as they had done at the front door, the little man's eyes flickered over their faces. 
There was not a trace of friendliness in his manner. He was memorizing their appearance, but he felt no interest in them, or appeared to feel none. It occurred to Winston that a synthetic face was perhaps incapable of changing its expression. Without speaking or giving any kind of salutation, Marden went out, closing the door silently behind him. O'Brien was strolling up and down, one hand in the pocket of his black overalls, the other holding a cigarette. You understand, he said, that you'll be fighting in the dark. You will always be in the dark. You will receive orders and you will obey them without knowing why. Later I shall send you a book from which you will learn the true nature of the society we live in and the strategy by which we shall destroy it. When you have read the book, you will be full members of the Brotherhood. But between the general aims that we are fighting for and the immediate tasks of the moment, you will never know anything. I tell you that the Brotherhood exists, but I cannot tell you whether its numbers are a hundred members or ten million. From your personal knowledge, you will never be able to say that it numbers even as many as a dozen. You will have three or four contacts who will be renewed from time to time as they disappear. As this was your first contact, it will be preserved. When you receive orders, they will come from me. If we find it necessary to communicate with you, it will be through Martin. When you're finally caught, you will confess. That is unavoidable. But you will have very little to confess, other than your own actions. You will not be able to betray more than a handful of unimportant people. Perhaps you will not even betray me. By that time, I may be dead, or... I shall have become a different person with a different face. He continued to move to and fro over the soft carpet. In spite of the bulkiness of his body, there was a remarkable grace in his movements. It came out even in the gesture with which he thrust a hand into his pocket or manipulated a cigarette. More even than of strength, he gave an impression of confidence and of an understanding tinged with irony. However much in earnest he might be, he had nothing of the single-mindedness that belongs to a fanatic. When he spoke of murder, suicide, venereal disease, amputated limbs, and altered faces, it was with a faint air of persiflage. This is unavoidable, his voice seemed to say. This is what we've got to do, unflinchingly, but this is not what we shall be doing when life is worth living again. A wave of admiration, almost of worship, flowed out from Winston toward O'Brien. For a moment he had forgotten the shadowy figure of Goldstein. When you looked at O'Brien's powerful shoulders and his blunt-featured face so ugly and yet so civilized, it was impossible to believe that he could be defeated. There was no stratagem that he was not equal to, no danger that he could not foresee. Even Julia seemed to be impressed. She had let her cigarette go out and was listening intently. O'Brien went on. You will have heard rumors of the existence of the Brotherhood. No doubt you formed your own picture of it. You have imagined probably a huge underworld of conspirators meeting secretly in cellars, scribbling messages on walls, recognizing one another by code words or by special movements of the hand. Nothing of the kind exists. The members of the Brotherhood have no way of recognizing one another and it is impossible for any member to be aware of the identity of more than a very few others. Goldstein himself, if he fell into the hands of the Thought Police, could not give them a complete list of members, or any information sh that would lead them to a complete list. No such list exists. The Brotherhood cannot be wiped out, 
because it is not an organization in the ordinary sense. Nothing holds it together except an idea which is indestructible. You will never have anything to sustain you except the idea. You will get no comradeship and no encouragement. When finally you're caught, you will get no help. We never help our members. At most, when it is absolutely necessary that someone should be silenced, we are occasionally able to smuggle a razor blade into a prisoner's cell. You'll have to get used to living without results and without hope. You'll work for a while, you'll be caught, you will confess, and then you will die. Those are the only results that you will ever see. There is no possibility that any perceptible change will happen within our own lifetime. We are the dead. Our only true life is in the future. We shall take part in it as hands full of dust, splinters of bone. But how far away that future may be, there's no knowing. It might be a thousand years. At present, nothing is possible, except to extend the area of sanity, little by little. We cannot act collectively. We can only spread our knowledge outwards from individual to individual, generation after generation. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. He halted and looked for the third time at his wristwatch. It is almost time for you to leave, comrade, he said to Julia. Well, wait, uh, the decanter is still half full. He filled the glasses and raised his own glass by the stem. Uh, what shall it be this time, he said, still with the same faint suggestion of irony. To the confusion of the thought police? To the death of Big Brother? To humanity? To the future? To the past, said Winston. Ah, the past is more important, agreed O'Brien gravely. They emptied their glasses, and a moment later Julia stood up to go. O'Brien took a small box from the top of a cabinet and handed her a flat white tablet which he told her to place on her tongue. It was important, he said, not to go out smelling of wine. The lift attendants were very observant. As soon as the door had shut behind her, appeared to forget her existence. He took another pace or two up and down and then stopped. There are details to be settled, he said. I assume that you have a hiding place of some kind. Winston explained about the room over Mr. Charrington's shop. Oh, that'll do for the moment. Later we will arrange something else for you. It's important to change one's hiding place frequently. Meanwhile, I'll send you a copy of the book. Even O'Brien, Winston noticed, seemed to pronounce the words as though they were in italics. Goldstein's book, you understand, as soon as possible. It may be some days before I can get a hold of one. There aren't many in existence, as you can imagine. The thought police hunts them down and destroys them almost as fast as we can produce them. It makes very little difference. The book is indestructible. If the last copy were gone, we could reproduce it in almost word for word. Um, do you carry a briefcase to work with you, he added. As a rule, yes. What is it like? Black, very shabby, with two straps. Black, two straps, very shabby. Good. One day in the fairly near future, I cannot give a date, one of the messages among your morning's work will contain a misprinted word, and you will have to ask for a repeat. The following day, you will go to work without your briefcase. At some time during the day, in the street, 
A man will touch you on the arm and say, I think you have dropped your briefcase. The one he gives you will contain a copy of Goldstein's book. You will return it within 14 days. They were silent for a moment. There are a couple of minutes before you need go, said O'Brien. We shall meet again, if we do meet again. Winston looked up at him. In the place where there is no darkness, he said hesitantly. O'Brien nodded without appearance of surprise. In the place where there is no darkness, he said, as though he had recognized the illusion. And in the meantime, is there anything else that you wish to say before you leave? Any message? Any question? Winston thought. There did not seem to be any further question that he wanted to ask. Still less did he feel any impulse to utter high-sounding generalities. Instead of anything directly connected with O'Brien or the Brotherhood, there came into his mind a sort of composite picture of the dark bedroom where his mother had spent her last days, and the little room over Mr. Charrington's shop, and the glass paperweight, and the steel engraving in its rosewood frame. Almost at random, he said, Uh... Did you ever happen to hear an old rhyme that begins, Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens? Again O'Brien nodded. With sort of grave courtesy, he completed the stanza. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens. You owe me three farthings, said the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, said the bells of Old Bailey. When I grow rich, say the bells of Shoreditch. You knew the last line, said Winston. Yes, I knew the last line. But now I'm afraid it's time for you to go. But uh, uh, wait, you'd better let me give you one of these tablets. As Winston stood up, O'Brien held out his hand. His powerful grip crushed the bones of Winston's palm. At the door, Winston looked back but O'Brien seemed already to be in process of putting him out of his mind. He was waiting with his hands on the switch that controlled the telescreen. Behind him, Winston could see the writing table with its green-shaded lamp and the speak-right and the wire baskets, deep laden with papers. The incident was closed. Within thirty seconds, it occurred to him. O'Brien would be back at his interrupted and important work on behalf of the party. You are listening to Part 8 of the 1975 reading by Charles Morgan and June Ferre of George Orwell's classic novel, 1984. To get a copy of this program or the entire 10-hour Books on Audio reading, with Charles Morgan and June Foray, go to PacificaRadioArchives.org or call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. And now back to our program. Winston was gelatinous with fatigue. Gelatinous was the right word. It had come into his head spontaneously. His body seemed to have 
not only the weakness of a jelly, but its translucency. He felt that if he held up his hand, he would be able to see the light through it. All the blood and lymph had been drained out of him by an enormous debauch of work, leaving only a frail structure of nerves, bones, and skin. All sensations seemed to be magnified. His overalls fretted his shoulders. The pavement tickled his feet. Even the opening and closing of a hand was an effort that made his joints creak. He had worked more than ninety hours in five days. So had everyone else in the ministry. Now it was all over, and he had literally nothing to do, no party work of any description, until tomorrow morning. He could spend six hours in the hiding place and another nine in his own bed. And slowly, in mild afternoon sunshine, he walked up a dingy street in the direction of Mr. Charrington's shop, keeping one eye open for the patrols, but irrationally convinced that this afternoon there was no danger of anyone interfering with him. The heavy briefcase that he was carrying bumped against his knees at each step, sending a tingling sensation up and down the skin of his leg. Inside it was the book, which he had now had in his possession for six days and had not yet opened nor even looked at. On the sixth day of hate week, after the processions, the speeches, the shouting, the singing, the banners, the posters, the films, the waxworks, the rolling of drums and squealing of trumpets, the tramp of marching feet, the grinding of the caterpillars of tanks, the roar of massed planes, the booming of guns. After six days of this, when the great orgasm was quivering to its climax and the general hatred of Eurasia had boiled up into such delirium that if the crowd could have got their hands on the 2,000 Eurasian war criminals who were to be publicly hanged on the last day of the proceedings, they would unquestionably have torn them to pieces. At just this moment, it had been announced that Oceania was not, after all, at war with Eurasia. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Eurasia was an ally. There was, of course, no admission that any change had taken place. Merely it became known with extreme suddenness and everywhere at once that East Asia and not Eurasia was the enemy. Winston was taking part in a demonstration in one of the central London squares at the moment when it happened. It was night, and the white faces and the scarlet banners were luridly floodlit. The square was packed with several thousand people, including a block of about a thousand schoolchildren in the uniform of the spies. On a scarlet-draped platform, an orator of the inner party, a small, lean man with disproportionately long arms and a large, bald skull over which a few lank locks straggled, was haranguing the crowd. A little rumpled stiltskin figure, contorted with hatred, he gripped the neck of the microphone with one hand, while the other, enormous at the end of a bony arm, clawed the air menacingly above his head. 
His voice, made metallic by the amplifiers, boomed forth an endless catalogue of atrocities, massacres, deportations, lootings, rapings, torture of prisoners, bombing of civilians, lying propaganda, unjust aggressions, broken treaties. It was almost impossible to listen to him without being first convinced and then maddened. At every few moments the fury of the crowd boiled over and the voice of the speaker was drowned by a wild, beast-like roaring that rose uncontrollably from thousands of throats. The most savage yells of all came from the schoolchildren. The speech had been proceeding for perhaps twenty minutes when a messenger hurried on to the platform and a scrap of paper was slipped into the speaker's hand. He unrolled and read it without pausing in his speech. Nothing altered in his voice or manner or in the content of what he was saying, but suddenly the names were different. Without words said, a wave of understanding rippled through the crowd. Oceania was at war with East Asia. The next moment there was a tremendous commotion. The banners and posters with which the square was decorated were all wrong. Quite half of them had the wrong faces on them. It was sabotage. The agents of Goldstein had been at work. There was a riotous interlude while posters were ripped from the walls, banners torn to shreds and trampled underfoot. The spies performed prodigies of activity in clambering over the rooftops and cutting the streamers that fluttered from the chimneys, but within two or three minutes it was all over. The orator, still gripping the neck of the microphone, his shoulders hunched forward, his free hand clawing at the air, had gone straight on with his speech. One minute more, and the feral roars of rage were again bursting from the crowd. The hate continued exactly as before, except that the target had been changed. The thing that impressed Winston in looking back was that the speaker had switched from one line to the other, actually in mid-sentence, not only without a pause, but without even breaking the syntax. But at the moment he had other things to preoccupy him. It was during the moment of disorder, while the posters were being torn down, that a man whose face he did not see had tapped him on the shoulder and said, Excuse me, I think you've dropped your briefcase. He took the briefcase abstractedly without speaking. He knew that it would be days before he had an opportunity to look inside it. The instant that the demonstration was over, he went straight to the Ministry of Truth, though the time was now nearly twenty-three hours. The entire staff of the Ministry had done likewise. The orders, already issuing from the telescreens, recalling them to their posts, were hardly necessary. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. A large part of the political literature of five years was now completely obsolete. Reports and records of all kinds, newspapers, books, pamphlets, films, soundtracks, photographs, all had to be rectified at lightning speed. Although no directive was ever issued, 
It was known that the chiefs of the department intended that within one week no reference to the war with Eurasia or the alliance with East Asia should remain in existence anywhere. The work was overwhelming, all the more so because the processes that it involved could not be called by their true names. Everyone in the records department worked 18 hours in the 24 with two three-hour snatches of sleep. Mattresses were brought up from the cellars and pitched all over the corridors. Meals consisted of sandwiches and victory coffee, wheeled round on trolleys by attendants from the canteen. Each time that Winston broke off for one of his spells of sleep, he tried to leave his desk clear of work, and each time that he crawled back, sticky-eyed and aching, it was to find that another shower of paper cylinders had covered the desk like a snowdrift, half burying the speak-right and overflowing onto the floor, so that the first job was always to stack them into a neat enough pile to give him room to work. What was worst of all was that the work was by no means purely mechanical. Often it was enough merely to substitute one name for another, but any detailed report of events demanded care and imagination. Even the geographical knowledge that one needed in transferring the war from one part of the world to another was considerable. And by the third day, his eyes ached unbearably, and his spectacles needed wiping every few minutes. It was like struggling with some crushing physical task, something which one had the right to refuse and which one was nevertheless neurotically anxious to accomplish. Insofar as he had time to remember it, he was not troubled by the fact that every word he murmured into the speak-right, every stroke of his ink pencil, was a deliberate lie. He was as anxious as anyone else in the department that the forgery should be perfect. On the morning of the sixth day, the dribble of cylinders slowed down. For as much as half an hour, nothing came out of the tube. Then, one more cylinder, then, nothing. Everywhere, at about the same time, the work was easing off. A deep and, as it were, secret sigh went through the department. A mighty deed which could never be mentioned had been achieved. It was now impossible for any human being to prove by documentary evidence that the war with Eurasia had ever happened. At 1200, it was unexpectedly announced that all workers in the ministry were free till tomorrow morning. Winston, still carrying the briefcase containing the book, which had remained between his feet while he worked and under his body while he slept, went home, shaved himself, and almost fell asleep in his bath, although the water was barely more than tepid. With a sort of Voluptuous creaking in his joints, he climbed the stair above Mr. Charrington's shop. He was tired, but not sleepy any longer. He opened the window, lit the dirty little oil stove, and put on a pan of water for coffee. Julia would arrive presently. Meanwhile, there was the book. He sat down in the sluttish armchair and undid the straps of the briefcase. 
a heavy black volume amateurishly bound with no name or title on the cover. The print also looked slightly irregular. The pages were worn at the edges and fell apart easily, as though the book had passed through many hands. The inscription on the title page ran, The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emanuel Goldstein. Winston began reading. Ignorance is strength. Throughout recorded time, and probably since the end of the Neolithic age, there have been three kinds of people in the world, the high, the middle, and the low. They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names, and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude toward one another, have varied from age to age, but the essential structure of society has never altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly irrevocable changes, the same pattern has always reasserted itself, just as a gyroscope will always return to equilibrium, however far it is pushed, one way or the other. The aims of these three groups are entirely irreconcilable. Winston stopped reading, chiefly in order to appreciate the fact that he was reading in comfort and safety. He was alone, no telescreen, no ear at the keyhole, no nervous impulse to glance over his shoulder or cover the page with his hand. The sweet summer air played against his cheek. From somewhere far away there floated the faint shouts of children. In the room itself, there was no sound except the insect voice of the clock. He settled deeper into the armchair and put his feet up on the fender. It was bliss, it was eternity. Suddenly, as one sometimes does with a book of which one knows that one will ultimately read and reread every word, he opened it at a different place and found himself at the third chapter. He went on reading. Chapter 3, War is Peace. The splitting up of the world into three great superstates was an event which could be and indeed was foreseen before the middle of the 20th century. With the absorption of Europe by Russia and the British Empire by the United States, two of the three existing powers, Eurasia and Oceania, were already effectively in being. The third, East Asia, only emerged as a distinct unit after another decade of confused fighting. The frontiers between the three superstates are in some places arbitrary, and in others they fluctuate according to the fortunes of war, but in general they follow geographical lines. Eurasia comprises the whole of the northern part of the European and Asiatic landmass from Portugal to the Bering Strait. Oceania comprises the Americas, the Atlantic Islands, including the British Isles, Australasia, and the southern portion of Africa. East Asia, smaller than the others and with a less definite western frontier, comprises China and the countries to the south of it, the Japanese islands, and a large but fluctuating portion of Manchuria, Mongolia, and Tibet. 
In one combination or another, these three superstates are permanently at war and have been so for the past 25 years, Winston read. War, however, is no longer the desperate, annihilating struggle that it was in the early decades of the 20th century. It is a warfare of limited aims between combatants who are unable to destroy one another, have no material cause for fighting, and are not divided by any genuine ideological difference. This is not to say that either the conduct of the war or the prevailing attitude toward it has become less bloodthirsty or more chivalrous. On the contrary, War hysteria is continuous and universal in all countries, and such acts as raping, looting, the slaughter of children, the reduction of whole populations to slavery, and reprisals against prisoners, which extend even to boiling and burying alive, are looked upon as normal. And, when they are committed by one's own side and not by the enemy, meritorious. But in a physical sense, war involves very small numbers of people, mostly highly trained specialists, and causes comparatively few casualties. The fighting, when there is any, takes place on the vague frontiers whose whereabouts the average man can only guess at, or round the floating fortresses which guard strategic spots on the sea lanes. In the centers of civilization, war means no more than a continuous shortage of consumption goods and the occasional crash of a rocket bomb, which may cause a few scores of deaths. War has, in fact, changed its character. More exactly, the reasons for which war is waged have changed in their order of importance. Motives which were already present to some small extent in the great wars of the early 20th century have now become dominant and are consciously recognized and acted upon. To understand the nature of the present war, for in spite of the regroupings which occur every few years, it is always the same war, one must realize in the first place that it is impossible for it to be decisive. None of the three superstates could be definitely conquered, even by the other two in combination. They are too evenly matched, and their natural defenses are too formidable. Eurasia is protected by its vast land spaces, Oceania by the width of the Atlantic and the Pacific, East Asia by the fecundity and industriousness of its inhabitants. Secondly, there is no longer, in a material sense, anything to fight about. With the establishment of self-contained economies in which production and consumption are geared to one another, the scramble for markets, which was a main cause of previous wars, has come to an end, while the competition for raw materials is no longer a matter of life and death. In any case, each of the three superstates is so vast that it can obtain almost all of the materials that it needs within its own boundaries. Insofar as the war has a direct economic purpose, it is a war for labor power between the frontiers of the superstates and not permanently in the possession of any of them, 
There lies a rough quadrilateral with its corners at Tangier, Brazzaville, Darwin, and Hong Kong, containing within it about a fifth of the population of the earth. It is for the possession of these thickly populated regions and of the northern ice cap that the three powers are constantly struggling. In practice, no one power ever controls the whole of the disputed area. Portions of it are constantly changing hands, and it is the chance of seizing this or that fragment by a sudden stroke of treachery that dictates the endless changes of alignment. All of the disputed territories contain valuable minerals, and some of them yield important vegetable products such as rubber, which in colder climates it is necessary to synthesize by comparatively expensive methods. But above all, they contain a bottomless reserve of cheap labor. Whichever power controls equatorial Africa or the countries of the Middle East or southern India or the Indonesian archipelago disposes also of the bodies of scores of hundreds of millions of ill-paid and hard-working coolies, the inhabitants of these areas, reduced more or less openly to the status of slaves, pass continually from conqueror to conqueror and are expended like so much coal or oil in the race to turn out more armaments, to capture more territory, to control more labor power, to turn out more armaments, to capture more territory, and so on and so on indefinitely. It should be noted that the fighting never really moves beyond the edges of the disputed areas. The frontiers of Eurasia flow back and forth between the basin of the Congo and the northern shore of the Mediterranean. The islands of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific are constantly being captured and recaptured by Oceania or by East Asia. In Mongolia, the dividing line between Eurasia and East Asia is never stable. Round the pole, all three powers lay claim to enormous territories which in fact are largely uninhabited and unexplored. But the balance of power always remains roughly even, and the territory which forms the heartland of each superstate always remains inviolate. Moreover, the labor of the exploited peoples round the equator is not really necessary to the world's economy. They add nothing to the wealth of the world, since whatever they produce is used for purposes of war, and the object of waging a war is always to be in a better position in which to wage another war. By their labor, the slave populations allow the tempo of continuous warfare to be speeded up. But if they did not exist, the structure of world society and the process by which it maintains itself would not be essentially different. The primary aim of modern warfare, in accordance with the principles of doublethink, this aim is simultaneously recognized and not recognized by the directing brains of the inner party, is to use up the products of the machine without raising the general standard of living. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the problem of what to do with the surplus of consumption goods has been latent in industrial society. At present, when few human beings even have enough to eat, this problem is obviously not urgent, and it might not have become so even if no artificial processes of destruction had been at work. The world of today 
is a bare, hungry, dilapidated place compared with the world that existed before 1914, and still more so if compared with the imaginary future to which the people of that period looked forward. In the early 20th century, the vision of a future society, unbelievably rich, leisured, orderly, and efficient, a glittering antiseptic world of glass and steel and snow-white concrete, was part of the consciousness of nearly every literate person. Science and technology were developing at a prodigious speed, and it seemed natural to assume that they would go on developing. This failed to happen partly because of the impoverishment caused by a long series of wars and revolutions, partly because scientific and technical progress depended on the empirical habit of thought, which could not survive in a strictly regimented society. As a whole, the world is more primitive today than it was 50 years ago. Certain backward areas have advanced, and various devices, always in some way connected with warfare and police espionage, have been developed. But experiment and invention have largely stopped, and the ravages of the atomic war of the 1950s have never been fully repaired. Nevertheless, the dangers inherent in the machine are still there. And from the moment when the machine first made its appearance, it was clear to all thinking people that the need for human drudgery and therefore to a great extent for human inequality had disappeared. If the machine were used deliberately for that end, hunger, overwork, dirt, illiteracy, and disease could be eliminated within a few generations. And in fact, without being used for any such purpose, but by a sort of automatic process, by producing wealth, which it was sometimes impossible not to distribute, the machine did raise the living standards of the average human being very greatly over a period of about 50 years at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. But it was also clear that an all-round increase in wealth threatened the destruction, indeed, in some sense, was the destruction of a hierarchical society. In a world in which everyone worked short hours, had enough to eat, lived in a house with a bathroom and a refrigerator, and possessed a motor car or even an airplane, the most obvious and perhaps the most important form of inequality would already have disappeared. If it once became general, wealth would confer no distinction. It was possible, no doubt, to imagine a society in which wealth, in the sense of personal possessions and luxury, should be evenly distributed, while power remained in the hands of a small, privileged caste. But in practice, such a society could not long remain stable. For if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike, the great mass of human beings who are normally stupefied by poverty would become literate and would learn to think for themselves. And when once they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had no function, and they would sweep it away. In the long run, a hierarchical society was only possible on a basis of poverty and ignorance. 
To return to the agricultural past, as some thinkers about the beginning of the 20th century dreamed of doing, was not a practical solution. It conflicted with the tendency toward mechanization, which had become quasi-instinctive throughout almost the whole world, and moreover, any country which remained industrially backward was helpless in a military sense and was bound to be dominated, directly or indirectly, by its more advanced rivals. Nor was it a satisfactory solution to keep the masses in poverty by restricting the output of goods. This happened to a great extent during the final phase of capitalism, roughly between 1920 and 1940. The economy of many countries was allowed to stagnate. Land went out of cultivation. Capital equipment was not added to. Great blocks of the population were prevented from working and kept half alive by state charity. But this, too, entailed military weakness, and since the privations it inflicted were obviously unnecessary, it made opposition inevitable. The problem was how to keep the wheels of industry turning without increasing the real wealth of the world. Goods must be produced, but they need not be distributed. And in practice, the only way of achieving this was by continuous warfare. Thus read Winston. This was it, the book so necessary to the understanding. Winston read, The essential act of war is destruction, not necessarily of human lives, but of the products of human labor. War is a way of shattering to pieces or pouring into the stratosphere or sinking in the depths of the sea materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable and hence, in the long run, too intelligent. Even when weapons of war are not actually destroyed, their manufacture is still a convenient way of expending labor power without producing anything that can be consumed. A floating fortress, for example, has locked up in it the labor that would build several hundred cargo ships. Ultimately, it is scrapped as obsolete, never having brought any material benefit to anybody, and with further enormous labors, 
another floating fortress is built. In principle, the war effort is always so planned as to eat up any surplus that might exist after meeting the bare needs of the population. In practice, the needs of the population are always underestimated, with the result that there is a chronic shortage of half the necessities of life, but this is looked on as an advantage. It is deliberate policy to keep even the favored groups somewhere near the brink of hardship because a general state of scarcity increases the importance of small privileges and thus magnifies the distinction between one group and another. By the standards of the early 20th century, even a member of the inner party lives an austere, laborious kind of life. Nevertheless, the few luxuries that he does enjoy, his large, well-appointed flat, the better texture of his clothes, the better quality of his food and drink and tobacco, his two or three servants, his private motor car or helicopter, set him in a different world from a member of the outer party, and the members of the outer party have a similar advantage in comparison with the submerged masses whom we call the proles. The social atmosphere is that of a besieged city where the possession of a lump of horseflesh makes the difference between wealth and poverty. And at the same time, the consequences of being at war and therefore in danger makes the handing over of all power to a small caste seem the natural unavoidable condition of survival. War, it will be seen, not only accomplishes the necessary destruction, but accomplishes it in a psychologically acceptable way. In principle, it would be quite simple to waste the surplus labor of the world by building temples and pyramids, by digging holes and filling them up again, or even by producing vast quantities of goods and then setting fire to them. But this would provide only the economic and not the emotional basis for a hierarchical society. And that does it for Part 8 of the 10-part Pacifica Radio Archive's original audio read of George Orwell's 1984. To get a copy of this program or the entire 10-hour Books on Audio Reading, with Charles Morgan and June Foray, go to PacificaRadioArchives.org or call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. The original Paul Vangelisti production was created for Pacifica Radio in 1975. I'm Mark Torres. Thank you for helping keep our history alive. <laughs>